Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count for your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Quick peek behind the curtain. It is Friday as we record this, and all three of us are really looking forward to the weekend. Hi, I'm Ben. Hi, I'm Noel, and double peek behind the curtain. This is take two <laughs> of starting this episode. The first time around, I said that my name was Ben, uh, and uh, you had said that we were very excited to be here. I was going to say I'm very exhausted, but still excited to be here, but then I called myself you. I don't know <laughs> if that's some kind of like Freudian thing or what, but uh, I am happy to be here and happy to see you. I'm happy. I'm happy to be here, and I'm happy to see you as well, Noel. The same goes for our super producer, Casey Pegram, quick question for you, Casey. Have you ever been in a hot air balloon? Never, no. Uh, what about you, Noel? No, it seems utterly terrifying to me. I am, I, I have also never, as far as I know, uh, been in a hot air balloon. So if I ever was, I must have been a, a wee wee tyke. But they are one of my favorite of ridiculous human inventions. Can you just imagine the cartoonish audacity of it? Someone said, well, we'll just, you know, get up there and see how it goes from there. Uh, hot air balloons, aside from being, you know, visually stunning and inspiring, are also a passion of many, many people. In fact, we before we went on the air today, we're looking into this, and I found no less than three hot air balloon festivals going on here in our fair state of Georgia. So this is my pitch. Noel, Casey, do, do you guys want to go on a hot air balloon with me? We could become Ridiculous History, the podcast of the air. <laughs> there we go. And some people, perhaps Cheryl Crow included, would say that we have enough hot air already. Eh? 
God, uh, she is just the worst, man. She's really dogging us, man. Why, dude? I don't know. What did we ever do to Cheryl? Just complimented the bongos, you that's know? That's what I always do. I really do think that's a very important moment in American music. Agreed, agreed, my friend. Uh, we want to hear about the hot air balloon experiences in your life or the festivals in your neck of the global woods. And we'll we'll keep you guys updated over the summer if any of us or all of us make it to one of those. But today's story is not about the uh, fun, high-altitude hijinks of touring the air in a hot air balloon. No, it is about balloons as weapons. Yeah, I mean, when we think of aerial attacks against the United States, the first thing, obviously, that comes to mind, and for many, the only thing that comes to mind, uh, are the tragic events of Pearl Harbor on December 7th of 1941, when Japanese forces mounted a bombing raid on Pearl Harbor, kicking off uh, the events of World War II on September 9th of 1942. But it turns out, Ben, that is not the only um, air attack on American soil. You're absolutely right. It turns out that one of the most unusual attacks on American soil uh, occurred during World War II, and it was a balloon attack. Or it would be more accurate to say a balloon bombing. You see, the Japanese army employed balloon bombs, or as they were called, Fugos, F-U-G-O-S. Starting in 1944, the Japanese military constructed and launched over 9,000 high-altitude balloons, and these each were loaded with 50 pounds of explosives. That's right, Ben. So the Japanese Military Scientific Laboratory actually came up with the idea of what they referred to as Fusen Bakuden, or balloon bombs, back in 1933. And the Fugo that you mentioned, Ben, or these balloon bombs, were just one of several ideas that were proposed by uh, this research unit. And there is a fantastic scholarly report in the Smithsonian Annals of Flight by Robert C. Mickus. It's kind of the definitive work on this. And it's pretty crazy. Some of the uh, the ideas they didn't go with are even more ridiculous. Um, there's one called a death ray. Mm-hmm. And the idea there was it was going to be balloon driven. Uh, it would shoot like electric rays or like, a, you know, electric bolts at people on the ground. It would like hover low. Uh, and then there were several other versions of what became the Fugos. Lieutenant General uh, Raikichi Tada of the Japanese Military Scientific Laboratory is the one who was assigned to this program. And he developed several pretty out there ideas that were already in the works. One of them was the IGO weapon, which was a wire controlled tank that could attack uh, enemy positions. And then there was the Rogo weapon, which uh, was a rocket propelled weapon. And then you had what I mentioned earlier, the death ray that would kill enemies up close with this electric charge. But the one that that seemed like it was going to be a winner out of these, the one they wanted to take all the way, was the Fugo weapon, which uh, was an altitude-controlled balloon. In terms of, when I say altitude-controlled, I mean there was a barometric uh, valve that would act 
according to the elevation, according to how uh, the altitude of the of the balloon, and it would uh, drop sandbags if it went too high, and then it would uh, you know change the um, amount of air that was in the balloon when it went too low. Um, and the idea was it had a fuse that would ignite once the um, wind currents carried the balloon close to the American coast. And the idea was to wreak havoc and chaos on America's uh, Pacific Northwest region specifically mm. um, by causing forest fires. These incendiary devices would deploy when the fuse would would burn up, and it was meant to not necessarily cause any kind of real infrastructure damage, but just ca- kind of cause chaos and mass confusion. Yeah, and, you know, I, we can totally understand how this pitch sounds crazy at first blush, but a little bit of a historical context will help us realize that this is this kind of a brilliant idea. This is not the first time balloons were weaponized. During the Italian War of Independence from 1848 to 1849, Austrian Lieutenant Eucatus undertook the technical development of balloons that could be used as bombs. So there was historical precedent. And the thing was, no one had quite pulled it off as successfully as the Japanese military would hope. Let's let's talk just a little bit about these balloons. As described by J. David Rogers of the Missouri University of Science and Technology, these balloon bombs were 33 feet in diameter, and they could lift about 1,000 pounds, but the deadly portion of the cargo, again, was this 33-pound anti-personnel frag bomb, fragmentation bomb, and it was attached to that fuse you mentioned, Nola, 64-foot-long fuse that was intended to burn for exactly 82 minutes before detonating. And despite the fact that these are weapons of war, you have to appreciate the aesthetic. These balloons were made of rubberized silk or paper, and they were handmade. These were glued together. Now, one of the things that we, not being hot air balloon experts, uh, have always wondered, alone and together here on the show, is how exactly you steer a hot air balloon. Because on the offset, it seems tough. You would want like a fan up there maybe to provide some sort of propulsion or to function, you know, more or less as a rudder. For the Japanese military, the goal here was kind of a spaghetti-at-the-wall approach. They decided that quantity was a quality all its own, and so they released an estimated 9,000 of these balloons. So far as we know, at least 342 reached the U.S., and some even got as far as Nebraska. But what was their attrition rate? Did they, were they actually causing harm? No. <laughs> no, because they couldn't be steered, and uh, the technology or the uh, the idea behind them is they would travel on these winter jet streams uh, for an average of sixty hours to reach America. Um, and like you said, they greenlit through this project after realizing that there was a potential for success. About ten thousand, between nine and ten thousand of these balloons, and they were handmade, Ben, by school children by young schoolgirls from a neighboring uh, school um, to the uh, site of this uh, this project. And it took 30 men uh, about 30 minutes to an hour to prepare each of these balloons for flight. And let's remember, these were unmanned balloons. Uh, mm-hmm. These were meant to be autonomous and to uh, behave in certain ways depending on the altitude and just hope that they would get to their target. 
Um, and the fact of the matter is they were launched on the birthday of uh, the former emperor Meiji, um, and that is when the first series of launches took place. And despite the project being top secret, they were not very inconspicuous. They were spotted. They were described as looking like clusters of jellyfish in the sky. Absolutely, because if you look at the picture, you've got this 33-foot diameter balloon, right? And then you've got this fuse going down, and the the stuff that it's carrying— it looks like a, a large version of Snap and Pops. Uh, do you guys remember those, the little paper mm-hmm. bags that you would throw and they would have a pop? Yeah, with a tiny little, you know, like piece paper of paper twist. fuse at the top. Yeah, the twist, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, looks, it looks very similar to that, or maybe tea bags wrapped in twine. The thing is that although they launched thousands and thousands of these balloons, they didn't cause the level of havoc that the Japanese military hoped they would create. They did have some uh, damaging psychological uh, effects because you look up in the sky and there's this balloon invasion that's unexplained. And the the amazing thing is that they made it across the Pacific at at all. They were launched from Japan to the U.S. and into Canada. And that trip took several days, again, with no one on board, no one steering, and here's one of the problems. The U.S. reacted in a very strange way. Two days after the initial launch, there's a Navy patrol off the coast of California, and they see some tattered cloth in the sea. They retrieve it, and they notice that it has Japanese characters on it. They alert the FBI, and then two weeks later, more sea debris of balloons that didn't make the journey are found, and the military started putting together the puzzle pieces. They said something is up, and then over the next four weeks, reports of balloons started coming in from all across the western half of North America, and every day, American citizens began seeing these tattered pieces of cloth or hearing explosions in the distance. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. Big screen. I want to be remembered for just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag-A-Job's got a worker for that. 
With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. In 1944, December 1944, uh, workers at a coal mine that was near Thermopolis, Wyoming, um, described seeing uh, a, quote, parachute in the air with lighted flares. Um, And after hearing a whistling noise, that's when they heard the sound of an explosion and they saw smoke very near the mine. And the military immediately freaks out about this, but initially they are not worried about explosives being carried by balloons Some of the folks in the military on the U.S. side are concerned that these balloons may carry something potentially far more dangerous than explosives. They are concerned that these balloons may carry biological weapons. And they thought maybe the balloons were being launched from the Japanese relocation or internment camps that existed at the time or German POW camps. And it wasn't until um, later in December of 1944 a military intelligence project was put together to evaluate and collect various evidence of these balloon sites. And they figured out they were coming from Japan, not just made by Japanese forces, but coming from Japan when they looked into a ballast and found that the sand inside the ballast was from a beach in the south of Japan. And they realized that these were meant to carry explosives. And the problem with those explosives is that they could pose a huge danger to the forest of the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, that's right, because it's very dry in the winter, and these forest fires could really spread and cause some serious havoc, and that was exactly what the Japanese had in mind. Again, they weren't thinking this is going to, you know, put a real dent militarily in the U.S. forces, but it would cause uh, some panic and be pretty inconvenient. But the military pretty quickly realized that these— weren't very precision targeted, that they were pretty aimless. Um, And even though they realized that they were not going to be very successful, as we heard from the folks that reported from the coal mine, it kind of blew up in midair and didn't actually cause any damage, just kind of freaked them out. Um, They still, the military, did not warn the public, did not, they kept it very top secret, and they did their investigation into it, like you described, but they didn't put out any kind of notice, so people were still seeing these clusters of weird floating jellyfish and didn't know what the hell was going on. Was it a UFO? Was it an errant uh, domestic hobbyist? What was that smoke in the distance? Did you also hear that explosion? It was... With the benefit of retrospect, we can say the U.S. military took the wrong course of action when they decided to stay silent because in the la- when there's no transparency, speculation thrives. But their logic did make sense at the time because they didn't want the Japanese forces to get a morale boost from hearing anything about this operation being a success. The Office of Censorship went so far as to instruct newspapers and radio stations not to discuss the balloons in print or on air. And they they made that decree on January 4th of 1945. And the Japanese only heard about one balloon incident 
on the North American continent, and that was through a Chinese newspaper. Now, as innovative and unsuccessful as this plan may sound, the unfortunate truth is that they did cause some fatalities. Yeah, that's the thing. They kept the the U.S. military kept this thing under pretty tight wraps until an incident occurred um, that actually did cause some casualties. Now, Japanese uh, Dome News Agency was reporting uh, on February 17th of 1945 that this had been a success. And this is a propaganda paper, and it was really, really, really inflating the numbers, saying that between 500 and 10,000 casualties occurred. Um, but here's the reality. It was actually uh, six Six casualties, and they were historically the only casualties on American soil for World War II, which is crazy because you think you would have heard of this, and I had never heard of this until we looked into it. Mm -hmm. So what happened? So this takes place in Bly, Oregon. It was a Sunday school picnic. They approached the mysterious debris of one of these balloons. A fellow named Reverend Archie Mitchell was about to yell a warning to the kids when the balloon exploded. Sherman Shoemaker, Edward Ingen, Jay Gifford, Joan Patsky, and Dick Patsky were all killed. And these were children. They were 11 to 14 years old. The reverend's wife, Elsie Mitchell, also died. And she was five months pregnant. This tragedy is what caused the U.S. military to finally break its silence and its suppression of the story. And so they began issuing warnings not to tamper with anything that looked remotely like one of these balloons. Because let's just backtrack slightly. Um, this balloon wasn't deployed properly. It's not like it fell on them. It was already on the ground. On the ground. And like basically this woman, uh, when she pulled the, the family car pulled over because she was feeling some morning sickness, mm -hmm. and she discovered this bundle of stuff that looked kind of like paper, like almost like origami paper or something like that, and thought it was neat looking. And they started poking at it or something, right? Yeah, yeah. And she said, look what I found, dear, according to the Mail Tribune, a newspaper in Southern Oregon. There's a great article you can read about this from David Kravitz writing on Wired, May 5th, 1945, Japanese balloon bomb kills six in Oregon. So it left these innocent people dead in a, uh, in a horrific scene, they didn't all die immediately. Joan Patsky died minutes after being seriously injured. There was a one-foot hole in the ground. And although they were, as you said, Noel, the only known casualties of this operation, the U.S. government didn't want to take any chances. So they issued, you know, they started warning people not to mess with these things. Uh, they also, at the same time, somewhat counterintuitively or paradoxically, emphasized that the balloons did not represent a serious threat. And they said, just report these. Just let us know if you see them. We'll send someone to take care of them. And that led to, you know, as we said, 300 to 342 incidents being recorded with various parts recovered, but no lives lost. They did, however, have a very close call with infrastructure. Yeah, one of them hit a power line and caused a blackout at a weapons facility uh, in Hanford, Washington, a nuclear weapons facility. That could have gone a lot worse than mm -hmm. it did. According to Colonel Franklin Matthias, 
the Hanford plant did lose about two days of production, but he thought, he, as he recalls at least, he says, uh, we were all tickled to death that this happened because it proved our backup system worked as far as keeping everything stable when they lose the power. And another guy there, Vincent Budd Whitehead, who is a counterintelligence agency at Hanford, recalled chasing and bringing down another balloon, and he was chasing it from a small airplane. <laughs> Get this. This is crazy. This is what he literally did. He says, I threw a brick at it. I put a hole in it, and it went down. I got out there, and I started tromping all over that thing and got all the gas out of it. I radioed in that I had found it and got it. They sent a bus up with all the specially trained personnel, gloves, full of contamination suits, masks. I had been walking around on that stuff, and they had not told me that they were afraid of bacterial warfare. Yes. I know. I want to do a quick correction. It wasn't – the balloon didn't hit the Hanford site. It hit the Bonneville Power Administration in Washington, which supplied power to the Hanford site. That was one of the biggest consumers of power from that particular grid. And so that could have caused some major problems. Mm-hmm. And so balloon sightings continued throughout the years. It, it's it's interesting because you know how these kind of things can take over uh, a country's – collective attention span, right? Just after the war, reports continued to come in from far and wide about balloon incidents. Uh, The Beatrice Daily Sun reports them over seven different towns in Nebraska, including Omaha. The Winnipeg Tribune notes that there's a balloon bomb found 10 miles from Detroit, one near Grand Rapids. Uh, They were still finding balloon bombs as far as like the the mid-1950s. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, these were like artifacts at this point, right? They were exploded already or maybe they didn't go off properly and they were scattered because, I mean, that's 10,000 that were deployed with various that, that ended up scattered all over the country. Um, I think it's, they made it as far as Michigan, I want to say, right? Yeah, they made it as far as Michigan. Hawaii even. Mm-hmm. And Alaska. Uh, I, I believe it was in January of 1955, the Albuquerque Journal reports that the U.S. Air Force discovered a balloon in Alaska in 1955. And then in 1944, looking back, an outfit called the Santa Cruz Sentinel noted that a fellow named Bert Weber, who was an author and a researcher, had found 45 different balloon bombs in Oregon, 37 in Alaska, 28 in Washington, and 25 in California. And reports still continue to pour in. There was one found in October of 2014. Really? Yeah, yeah. In British Columbia, uh, according to Henry Prose of the RCMP, or Royal Canadian Mounted Police, this balloon had been in the dirt for 70 years, and he said it, it would have been way too dangerous to move it. So it's possible that someone found it in the intervening decades and just decided to let sleeping dogs lie. So in other words... They didn't work. They were duds, right? Like the fuse didn't ignite properly, and then they just went down, and there was no boom. But still, if you mess with it, you know what I mean? It right. Could, you could cause it to explode. I, I don't think we found this, Ben, but what was the material? I know the balloons were hydrogen balloons, so that could have even aided in the uh, spreading of the fire because that's highly flammable, like in Hindenburg and all that. But what was the uh, material that the explosives were made of? Incendiary bomb is kind of a genre of bomb. It can include stuff like napalm, magnesium powder, white phosphorus. These used thermite. And thermite is, is uh, 
How did you say no? Did it occur in Breaking Bad? Yeah, there's a there's one of those MacGyver kind of moments in Breaking Bad where I think he uses an etch a sketch or like the iron filings in an etch a sketch to create thermite or to make a, a reaction that 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 produces this explosion. Yeah, thermite is a mixture of finely powdered aluminum and iron oxide. It creates a really high temperature on combustion, and it's often used in welding and for incendiary bombs. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. Big screen. I want to be remembered for just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. So this is this is dangerous stuff. And in 2014, when the RCMP found this, you know, this ancient bomb, uh, they handled it by putting C4 explosives on either side of the thing and blowing it to smithereens. And thermite burns so hot that it can, as it was used in that scene in Breaking Bad, melt metal. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a biggie. It's nothing to play with. Uh, so it's interesting because we have to consider how much of this plan and how much of the uh, fallout of it hinged purely on chance. You know what I mean? Well, that's the thing. We talked about earlier at the top of the show. There's really no way, even if you're manning a balloon or you're piloting a balloon, you're kind of just able to go up and down. I mean, we talked off air about how a Zeppelin or a blimp is a more or less a steerable hot air balloon <laughs> right, because right. it's more streamlined and it moves in a forward direction, right? And it's Ooh. got like a fan system. Um, but this kind of balloon really can only go up and down. And as we described earlier, it was uh, a kind of – 
altitude-controlled system. I believe I said it the other way around uh, earlier in the show, so I just want to correct myself there. If it was going too high, then hydrogen would be released from the balloon, and if it was going too low, then sandbags would be deployed. And it was all this kind of uh, valve that was controlled, like, barometrically. To keep it at a more or less consistent altitude. In order to have the most consistent path, because it was being, you know, pushed along by these, uh, these winter jet streams. But... Once you let them go, th- th- there's just no precision. It's like the episode we did on the bat bombs. Remember that, Ben? Yeah. Very similar. Yeah. Where they had to be deployed automatically using very similar method- mechanisms, I-, I-, I imagine, or I believe. Uh, and those were a big old mess, too. And didn't we? We used those against the Japanese. Remember? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because we dropped them on Japanese villages because the houses were made of wood and paper and stuff. Yeah. And they would potentially burn the houses, right? Yeah. Well, not the, not you and I specifically. No, no, the bats would. The bats would nest in the eaves <laughs> and then they had timers that would then eventually yeah. set off the devices, but that was a big flop too. That's the thing about innovation. It's it's always risky. Let, let's talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts of how this thing actually exploded. Like what what triggers the bomb? Well, there were a couple of different types of ordnance uh, mm-hmm. or payload is the military term mm-hmm. that they used. I think most of them used thermite, but they were just different sizes and there were different ones that had slightly different mechanisms. Yeah, anti-personnel and incendiary. That's right, exactly. Uh, but the incendiary device that I think was most common had a fuse that gets armed during flight. And then when it's dropped on impact, there's a magazine that's fired, which then ignites a black powder charge. It's much like the way a a, a pistol works, right? Mm -hmm. And then that, in turn, ignites uh, a central channel that contains another charge, and then the incendiary material, and there are these different pots that have more black powder charge, and then the explosive force of those reactions, that chain reaction, that uh, triggers the thermite, and then the body of the bomb actually erupts. It's enough to, because it's, it's made of metal. Right. And so we, we see the logic. We see how this could work, and we see the primary flaw in the plan, the reliance on chance, right, on, on who fortune favors that day. And this speaks to the desperate state of the war, you know, and the, and the desperate state of the Japanese military at the time. While weaponized balloons did not work out, for the Japanese military in World War II, that doesn't mean that our species has given up all hope of weaponizing balloons. In fact, we're still, as a species, developing weaponized balloons today. The United States Department of Defense Missile Defense Agency contracted Lockheed Martin to construct what they called a high-altitude airship, or HA for short, (laughs) (laughs) uh, for part of its ballistic missile defense system. This thing is unmanned. It is supposed to operate at a height of over 60,000 feet or 18,000 meters in a quasi-geostationary position to be a surveillance aircraft, to relay telecommunications, and to observe weather. Pretty, pretty crazy stuff, you know? Yeah, for sure. And I think, the you know, the way balloons are used mostly today is for observing weather. And then I think there was, there was a – remember the Google Loon project? I love the name. Yeah, it was a way to <laughs> deploy wireless internet connectivity in, oh, in, in rural, rural, areas. rural areas. And it was literally like, a th- a, you know, some sort of broadcast device that was attached to a balloon that could then hover over like these areas and they could like get Wi-Fi that way. 
Man, I love blimps and balloons so much. I get that they're silly. A few years ago, uh, our, our pal Scott Benjamin and I got really close to getting into a, a Goodyear blimp. And the more I think about it, you know, the, the only reason we don't have more blimps now is because someone would be a jerk and attack them or blow them up. Why can't we have nice things? Why can't I have a blimp? I know, I know. And I'll tell you this. I, I tell you I would not want to ride in a basket on a hot air balloon, but I'd be totally cool with riding in a blimp in style. <laughs> right? It's just a bigger basket. First class for me, baby. <laughs> right, like in Indiana Jones and the uh, Last Crusade. Remember? He hops on an airship. Oh, yeah. Airships are so cool because they're so ominous and so slow-moving, and they have this kind of, like, doom bringer kind of uh, quality to them, you know? And they make me think of, like, Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow. Or, oh, there like, we this go. kind of, like, idea of, like, a weird steampunky kind of future, you know? A- Angelina Jolie with an eye patch. Right? Oh, yeah. Eye patches are so cool. Her eye patch didn't have a string, though. It just kind of, like, stuck there. Yeah, it was just a patch. Because of the future, you know? Because of the because of the retro future. Well, no, uh, while I am, uh, while I'm candidly a, a little bit let down, poor choice of words, that, that uh, you don't want to go in a hot air balloon, I totally understand where you're coming from. And I would ride in a blimp with you. Casey Pegram, would you ride in a hot air balloon? You know, if I had a hot air balloon handy and we could be like up and back down pretty soon, would you, would you hop on? Um, I'll consider it. I'll consider it. What if there was a guarantee that we would take you to the land of Oz? Uh, I'll consider it. Okay. Okay. By which we mean Australia. Exactly. The <laughs> land of Aussies. <laughs> so, uh, let us know what you think. Let us know about your balloon experiences. Let us know if you would be in a hot air balloon. And, you know, honestly, we just have to shoot our shot at some point. There's no harm in asking. Do you have an, a blimp? Do you have access to a blimp? Because we would love to hang out with you on your blimp. That would be a pretty baller vehicle to own. Only the, the elitist <laughs> of the elite can own a blimp. It's such a, it's such a, to- like, unless it's one of those high-altitude surveillance platforms, it feels like any private citizen who just says, I want a blimp, is buying this billionaire's toy. So I'm saying, if you have a blimp, you also have to have, like, a hanger. A blimp-sized hanger (laughs) or some way to tether it to, like, the top of your, you know, skyscraper or whatever. It would be so cool to be in a blimp. It would be pretty cool. We did an episode on blimps uh, on, like, that was, was, like, made of pigskin or something like that. Mm -hmm. Or it was made of, you know, some organic material. And I believe there was a time where they were – infrastructure was was being put in place to, like, stow blimps. And they were literally tethered to the tops of buildings. Yes, that is correct. And they could – get into them that way. Like, they, they would, like, lower down ladders. I don't remember exactly how, how it worked. But. Mm-hmm. And if you want to learn more about airships, dirigibles, hot air balloons, and blimps, uh, you can check out uh, you can check out some old car stuff episodes. It's early in our respective careers, so, uh, so do be kind. Uh, but yes, please let us know about your airship and balloon adventures. You can find us on our Facebook group, Ridiculous Historians, where you can meet our favorite part of the show, your fellow listeners. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram, either as our show or Dramatic Pause as ourselves. Individually, I am at Embryonic Insider. I am at Ben Bolin. Uh, also, massive thanks, as always, to super producer Casey Pegram. As always, big thanks to our research associate, Gabe Luzier, Alex Williams, who composed our theme, our dear friend in spirit here with us now, Christopher Hasiotis. Um, and uh, you, Ben, I'd like to thank you. 
for just being such a dapper young lad with a heart of gold and a fine head of hair. Well, thank you, Noel. I appreciate that. And likewise to you, you've got a killer hat on. I'm, I'm, I've, you know, I've, I've been admiring your gorilla hat. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know, uh, my friend here is a big fan of ball caps and has, has quite a collection. And I got to tell you, man, I appreciate that compliment because I'm, I'm, I'm feeling a little... A little under the weather today. I'm, I'm kind of slumming it. I'm wearing jeans. Oh, I can't see them because they're underneath the table. From where I sit, you look like a, uh, a fine, strapping young lad. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, uh, I appreciate it. I wonder where the phrase strapping came from to describe someone as fit and capable. Story for another time. I think so. I think we should explore it uh, on another episode of Ridiculous History. We'll see you next time. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Avalon Waterways. Ben, are you in major need of a vacation right now? Noel, you're a mind reader. I am, and uh, aren't we all? We are. While cruising remains popular, there's something big happening in the industry, and that is, my friend, smaller ships. True story. The intimate ships of Avalon waterways can go where the big ships can only dream, through winding passageways of rolling vineyards and castled hills into the heart of timeless cities and storybook villages. That sounds like a delight. See how Avalon's smaller ships promise greater discoveries, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time. Special offers await at AvalonWaterways.com. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch strata coaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com.